In the year 2013, I was at St. Ben's back at, uh, I was in Covington, Louisiana, the, the seminary over there. And we were getting this retreat given to us by this archabbot, Archabbot Lambert. He's a retired archabbot of a monastery up north. And he was talking about these miracles, kind of like these miracles in the gospel reading, these, these healings and these raisings from the dead, and for instance, or, or you know, the, what would happen here where, where the man who was mute could speak and the, whose, whose hearing was restored. And I'll never forget, he had a very like strong, nasally voice. I couldn't, it's hard, kind of one of those voices that you can't forget even if you tried. And he goes, he was talking about this whole subject, and he goes, Now what happened to all these guys who received this healing? And we're all just kind of like, I don't know. And he goes, they all died. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I don't remember anything else from the conference. I was just very, like, shocked by the fact that he said that. But it did, he did bring up a good point. It's like, look, these miracles were nice. They were good. But in the, in the scheme of things, they were quite temporary. A guy received his hearing for, you know, maybe for the rest of his life. That's kind of nice. But in the scope of eternity, it's really not that big of a deal. It would be better if he just, like, restored him to eternal life. And he didn't even have to die. He didn't even have to struggle with any type of any type of ailments thereafter it would be better if he just restored them more than just like one short healing i mean imagine if you only had one doctor's visit for your entire life to be healed and that was that that wouldn't be too good would it and so it's kind of like it's, it was kind of like that's what he was pointing out was that in and of themselves these healing miracles don't stand on their own they're they're representative of something greater and what they're meant to do is they're meant to show us something more besides just a guy be restoring his having a sight restored or his, or his hearing restored. And I think what it ultimately shows is two things. The first one, really simple, is that this foreshadows the coming of the Messiah. If we read the Psalms, if we read the prophecies, if we read anything from the Old Testament kind of prophesying that the best is yet to come, it's always talking about how the Lord is going to restore sight to the blind, restore hearing to the deaf, restore speech to the mute. Which means that whenever Christ comes and does this 37 times or however many times he does it throughout the scriptures, what he's doing is saying over and over again, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And so what he's doing is he's showing us we can trust him. We can trust his words. We can trust his way. We can trust his life. But if we're honest, there's another element, there's another level of meaning behind these healings, especially this healing. This healing where a man received his speech and he received his hearing. And it's this. If we're under, to understand this, the, the other meaning behind these healings, what we need to do is we need to look at Psalm 115. We need to look at it in, in the lens of the effects of idolatry. Psalm 115 is titled... Praise the true God. And if we look at it, one of the things that it says is, he's, the, the, the psalmist is talking about the idols that people that have made, and one of the things they say is, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. And that's understandable. I mean, you look at any statue, all those things apply. But what he says about idolaters after he, after he makes that claim about statues, these fake statues, 
is he says their makers will come to be like them. Their makers will come to be like them. Deaf, blind, mute. That's the effects of idolatry. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing us in this gospel. He's here to heal us from the effects of sin. The effects of idolatry. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I was a kid and I was first learning about idolatry, my mom was telling me about it and she said, idolatry is whenever people go, and look, I, I was a little kid, so you know, you gotta, you gotta be very graphic with these things. So it's whenever you go and you worship statues. And so because of that, I was like, oh great, I'm not an idolater, woohoo! I don't think anybody's an idolater. I've actually never seen anybody personally worship a statue like that. I'm sure it happens, but it's just not that common. <clears throat> But if that's our lens, if that's our viewpoint, then we're really missing out on a lot of spiritual treasure the Lord wants to give us. Because if we're honest, while idolatry this day and age doesn't assume the pagan kind of mentality, they assume the pagan form of idolatry back in the olden days, whenever we had Zeus and Poseidon and all those things, idolatry today looks a lot different. It's been kind of short short-circuited, short where, you know, it's more aggressive. See, idolatry at its root is going to these gods, going to these things for fulfillment, going to stuff for fulfillment, which means that if idolatry back then was going to a statue to get blessings, then that means idolatry today can be summarized, and this, is, this doesn't cover all, cover all of idolatry, but it can be summarized as this, going to technology for fulfillment. How often does technology replace in our lives the, the place that God should hold in prominence? How often do we turn to our iPhones whenever we're bored, whenever we got nothing to do? What's the first thing we look at in the morning? We're probably not saying our prayers. We're probably checking to see if we got any missed calls, any missed messages. How often do we, if we want something or we need something, instead of turning to the Lord or praying about it all, what do we do? Let me see what Amazon, if Amazon.com has this thing, you know. So my point being is that technology can very often become a very large part of our lives, even to the point where it leaves us idolaters. And because of that, what ends up happening is we become shallow human beings. And we adopt what's called a technocratic mindset. Big word, doesn't mean a whole, it's not, but it's not that intimidating. Technocratic mindset, which basically means this. Whenever we look at stuff... What we're seeing is just stuff in so far, what we're seeing is just stuff that we can use. So for instance, you look at a forest and you think, oh yeah, if we, if we cut down those trees, that'll make good paper. If we look at, a, at sand, we can say, oh yes, if we consolidate that sand, maybe we can make some fine sandboxes for our kids. We look at rocks, we can oh yeah, look, maybe we can just rock climb the thing. And that's all fine, but God put us on this earth to, to see these things in a deeper way. What God is showing us here especially in this, in this miracle, is that technology and all of these things around us are not necessarily bad, but they're not going to fulfill us in and of themselves. So what does he do? Instead of looking at us and saying, if you want to have eternal life, get rid of your technology. If you want to have eternal life, burn your iPhone. That actually might not be a bad idea. But if you want to have eternal life, get rid of all this stuff. No, instead, what he does, he opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He opens our mouths. And instead, what he does, he replaces that technocratic mindset of looking at all this stuff and seeing how we can use it for our own good and replaces it 
It's what we can call a sacramental vision. A sacramental vision. Mike Foley summarized it best. He's the author of, of Drinking with the Saints. What he said was, a man with a sacramental vision can take a grain of sand, look at it, and see heaven in that grain of sand. And that's what the Lord has in store for us. What he wants us to see is that all of creation is beautiful. And that all of creation foreshadows something greater that's at hand. Idolatry says that this creation is as good as it gets. So take it while you got it. But the Lord says this creation shows us that the best is yet to come. That this isn't the end of the story. That this isn't the end of the picture. That there's no scarcity, but there's only abundance on the horizon. That there's only going to be greater things to come. But the only way we can experience that, the only way we can see that, is if we surrender to God and bind ourselves to the sacraments. As much as we can see all of creation in the eyes of God, recognizing that it's a foreshadowing of creation, foreshadowing of, of heaven, the, beginning, the, the ability to see that comes by gazing upon the Eucharist in adoration. It comes by going to confession and hearing those words of absolution. It comes by teaching and preaching the gospel. It comes by partaking of these sacraments. And the more and more we can partake of these sacraments, the more and more you and I can come alive. The more and more you and I can be healed of that scourge of idolatry that exists in today's society. The scourge of the idea that this is as good as it gets. It's not true. It's simply not true. There's so much more on the horizon. There's so much more in store. But that can only come to us if we live a sacramental life. If we, if we confess our sins of confession. If we come to Mass every Sunday. If we, if we attend, if we say our prayers morning, night. If we say a rosary on a daily basis. These things will begin to exfoliate. And we'll begin to see truly with our eyes open, our ears open, and our mouth open, that all of creation is but a foretaste of heaven. Amen.